Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Venditon Gallery podcast. This week sees the return of Graham Murrell, who was featured in our first podcast episode at the beginning of lockdown 2020. You'll notice that this episode is a slightly different format, and that's because we've been able to invite people back to the gallery once again in person to physical events. This episode features a talk that Graham did on the opening night of his current exhibition at Venditon Gallery, 20 years on. We have worked closely with Graham to bring together this collection of photographs from the last 20 years of his career. It was 20 years ago that he completed the Light Spells project at Kettle's Yard in collaboration with Catherine Faulkner. Graham discusses how Michael Harrison, the director of Kettle's Yard at the time, had such an impact on his life and career from that moment forwards, and the exhibition has been dedicated to his memory. Not only does Graham's work give a fine example of hand-printed black and white photographs, but you'll hear from his talk how he considers all aspects of the framing and the hanging as well. Crossing the line between object and photography. Creating a three-dimensional object from a traditionally two-dimensional art form. I hope you enjoy listening to this talk. It was fantastic to have people back in the gallery once again and enjoying the talk in person. If you would like to visit the exhibition, we are open until Sunday the 27th of June. Do check the website fenditongallery.com for more information. All the works can be viewed there too. Well, um, it's my turn to thank everybody for coming, and I'm amazed at what people will do for a free drink. (laughs) But um, I want to start by um, firing a shutter, because... (laughs) That's what photography to me sounds like, and um, it always has, and it's going to continue to do so, even even though you notice now that with your your portable phone or whatever, they put a fake one of those sounds on it when you take a picture, (laughs) but that's really what it's about, and it's about that kind of, the sound of that lovely, beautifully engineered machinery that makes that kind of noise. And it's using film, of course, which... Does anyone remember film? (laughs) Um, It's... uh, And and the thing about using film, I I find, is that it takes the time. It's a protracted business. So you have an idea, and you think about it a bit, and then you decide on which film you're going to use, because all films are slightly different qualities. And then, having made that decision, you've got to expose the film properly... And having done that, you're exposing it in terms of how you know you're going to process it because the two are intertwined. And then also at the same time is that you know what you're printing it on, paper-wise and so on, and how it's going to look at the end. And ultimately, where it's going to go. And um, that's an extended period of time. It's it's a period of what what I call, or obviously, is gestation, where the idea gets chance to evolve And what you might think you set out to do um, just takes a slightly different path. I mean, it's quite tedious if you aim for somewhere and you go straight there. You've got to be alert to the fact that there are offshoots that you can possibly take up. Um, And those are the things you must um, kind of just be alert to and and react to if you can. And film gives you time to do that because you, you develop the film and you look at it in negative, 
and you wonder about it. And then you make a contact print and you've got a sheet with all the images contacted on there. And you see them as a lump together and you think, nah, it's not really working or that one's working. And then you get the L squares out and you start recomposing them. And the whole thing evolves. Um, and you, you've, I think the, the, the end result is, has a benefit of that kind of process of maturity. And um, these around you are all to do with that, really. There's different films, different processes, and so on being used. And if we start with um, Kettle's Yard around the corner, that's where it all began, because um, I'd worked for quite a lot of years at, with uh, an artist who probably you don't know of. He's dropped out of recognition in Britain, but uh, Alan Reynolds, who was probably the most significant painter artist when I was at art school. We were paint, I was in the painting department, did painting and ceramics. And all, all my contemporary students were rushing out into the Kentish landscapes trying to do Alan Reynolds's because he was the leading man. I mean, if I tell you, the, the, the Tate bought three of his works from his degree show at, um, at, at, the, Royal, at the Royal College when he finished. So he was, he was, and then his work progressed into um, a degree of abstraction, semi-abstraction, and then total uh, constructivism. And the later works were beautifully sublime arrangements of white card on white card. And to your human eye, there's a white, but to take the photographs of that, absolute bloody nightmare. <laughs> because, you know, your eye says white on white, but the film and the camera says greys. Somebody once described photography as the pursuit of the infinite grey, which has been my kind of byword all these years. Um, and so I got so, by, more by luck than judgment, I, I, I managed to work out how to do it. And, and I, for 20 years, I photographed his work for his, uh, for his um, catalogues. And then one day, we were living in Cambridge at the time, and I approached Michael, um, and I asked if I could photograph in the gallery when it was empty, because it was like a in-the-round version of one of Alan's reliefs, white walls, white entrances, so on and so on. And he said, well, of course you can't, because there's either a show going up or a show going down. So, you know... I can't, um, there's never that time. But what about the house? Jimmy's house. You can come there whenever you like, you know? And I thought, oh, that's a good thing. That's rather nice. <laughs> so we went in and we had the privilege of about 18 months going in and out at any time of day, any time of week, any time of the year. And you saw it in a very different kind of way. And you were aware well, I read up a little bit about Jim Eade, and he, he had this edict, which is, first, you furnish your house with light. So you observe the way the light moves around the house, and then you place the objects relative to that. And he was quite particular about that. And I don't know whether anyone here, a Cambridge person, knew Betty Thompson. Um, yes, you would know Betty Thompson. Um, but she had been associated to the house for ages and ages, and she was, in fact, his PA at one point. And she told the story of her coming in and uh, being there at her desk, and Jim Mead coming in saying, Betty, dear, do you think your handbag would be better on the other side of the house? <laughs> you know? So it was kind of like placing things. Um, and... 
so I made a point of whenever we went there, I, I, I showed her the contact prints of the, week, the work we'd done the week before. And one really gratifying thing was that she said once, um, do you know, I've been associated with this house over 30 years, and I look at your pictures, and it's like somewhere I haven't seen. And I thought, yeah, that's good. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think that's one of the things that one does. I, uh, with, with the camera and with making photographs, um, is you look for those things which people bypass normally. I worked in Blackwell, the Arts and Crafts House in Cumbria, and there's an amazing room there which is unlike a Bailey Scott design, really, because it's so bright. It's, really, it's called the White Room. Double aspect, looks down over Windermere. And you get people coming in <coughs> with their brochure, and they go, White Room. Oh, yeah. White room, and off they go. <laughs> and they haven't stopped to look at how the light s sits on the window reveals or the way that it creeps. Well, of course, they haven't got the time. You know, they're just there to do that. So one's job, perhaps, with the camera is to photograph those things and point them out to people so that they then look again. Uh, back to um, Betty at uh, uh, Kettle's Yard saying... You know, I've seen things I never thought existed here. And the other thing was that when we put the exhibition up, it was fascinating to see people going around the gallery, looking at the works, and then going back into the house to try and see where they were photographed. <laughs> Which is you're like you've done the job, if you like, then, because you've made people see. And there's a quote along... I've, on, on those... On the bench there's a whole series of quotes and there's one from Dorothea Lang which says the camera is the tool that shows people how to see without a camera. Um, and that's another kind of byword that I put myself onto. Um, and then we come to the fact of making the work. Um, and this is, this is one of the original pictures from Kettle's Yard. And I framed it deliberately with this very deep gutter so, because I knew where it was going to sit, or they were going to sit in the gallery. And as the light changes on it, this becomes either a light space or a dark space, and it's all the time changing. And dear, <coughs> dear old Michael came up to me one day and said, you know what you've done, don't you? I oh, whoops, what have I done? <laughs> and he said, you've made object and image. And I thought, ah, that's good. I like that. You know, because it's kind of... And, and that really, that's also to do with how these works appear on the wall, because um, what I didn't want to do was make same size prints in same sorts of frames all around the room, because each project I take on, um, I think about how to present it relative to where it's going to go, or, or, or some kind of thing that makes it object as well as image. Um, and so Kettle's Yard started all that off, and then um, Michael sent a bunch of um, cards that we'd done down to Lady Besver at the New Arts Centre. Does anyone know of the New Arts Centre in the Arts and... Uh, you, yes, too <laughs> well done. Um, down near Salisbury, lovely space. And she'd just had built um, what she called her artist house, which ostensibly was somewhere that, um, that uh, artists could stay when they were installing works. They've got, she's got a gallery, which, 
Uh, Stephen Marshall. Do you know Stephen Marshall? <laughs> you would. There's an architect here who knows Stephen Marshall. Well, he designed the gallery and he designed the artist's house, and they were splendid pieces, and they were so beautifully put together and immaculately made that I insisted on staying one night at least in there, but you couldn't. You couldn't have a piece of toast, because if you dropped a crumb, it would ruin the whole ambiance of the place. But it was a... It was a it was, she referred to it as her, not only the artist's house, but her kettle's yard. And she invited me down to do a project there. So I spent 12 months going, 12 months was um, somewhere. That's 12 months over there. So that's, this, is the, this is the gallery part, um, which it doesn't look like that. And that's from the artist's house looking down into the courtyard. And that's within the orangery. But, um, so it made a series of pictures there. And um, I had to think of a title for it. And I thought, well, I'm going to be here for a year. So the title was, was 12 months, in a way. Um, but halfway through, or just over halfway through, Lady Bursborough suddenly said, she used to have, we used to have these amazing lunches where everybody came in, the gardener and, the, you know, whatever. And she, she did these lunches. And she suddenly said, oh, we don't want our, our book to look like Kettle's Yard's book, do we? And everybody looked at each other and said, book? What book? And then she said, no, 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 we're going to do a book. We're going to do a book of this. And I thought, oh, God. Um, if this is a book of the pictures that go up in the gallery, it's either going to look like a catalogue for the exhibition or it's going to look like the photographs or enlargements of the book. And it gave me a lot of trouble for a long time. And then I realized, I had a thought, and that was that I love using this, this camera, which is square format. Um, and the, the, the artist's house was basically two cubes, one on top of the other. And when you look at a square image, you tend to look round and in. And then the way that she displays the sculptures in the, in, in the landscape, as it were, um, and that was something she was really brilliant at. She, um, I'd go one week, and there'd be an Anthony Caro there, and there'd be a Gormley there, and there'd be a Barry Vanagon um, hairs over there. And then you go two weeks later, and they'd been changed around, but they worked just as well wherever they were placed. Um, and uh, so I thought, well, wait a minute. If I do a book, if I separate the two things, exhibition, book, I had a, uh, an X-Pan, which is a Hasselblad camera with this format. And um, I thought, that's the answer. I'll do a book which is about the landscape. It's there on the table over there called Within the Landscape. Because when you're walking towards a Gormley, there you see a Fanagon or you see a Caro. So your viewing is that way rather than that way. And so that <laughs> solved a problem. <laughs> and we produced that book. Um, and that brings up another thing which I like to kind of hook an idea on, which is a word or a title. Um, and at the time, we were living in Suffolk, uh, and it was 200 miles to Salisbury and 200 miles back. Long time to think. And um, Jenny was singing... Wife Jenny, round the corner, out of sight, so I don't catch her eye. Uh, <laughs> was singing with Auburn music. Um, being friends of Auburn music, we had 
the usual demand for a um, donation to the new Hoffman building. And I thought, well, you know, we've both been in teaching all our lives. We can't write a big fat check. But I said, and, and I'd been driving back and forth, and I'd read an article about John Pawson, the minimalist architect. And in it, he quoted Lewis Kahn, the American architect, with the phrase, uh, silence with its desire to be, and light the giver of all presences. And I thought, hang on, that's my, that's my job, you know, <laughs> light the giver of all presences, and silence. And then people had looked at photographs from um, 12 months and around, and said, you know, your photographs have all got a lovely sense of calm about them. And I think the sense of calm comes from the structure. And there's another quote there from Alan Reynolds, which is about horizontals and verticals. Um, and on this long drive home, I suddenly thought, I wonder if you can photograph silence. Um, not, in the con not in a sort of literal way with a bell with the bit that makes the dong <laughs> fallen out of it. But, you know, can you make a photograph which evokes silence? And then I thought, ah, I know what. Um, I could, go, I could approach Snake Maltings, which is a place dedicated to sound. So what better place to try and photograph silence than somewhere that's dedicated to sound? And as I said at the time, you know, musicians don't like this, but music is really only sound broken up with bits of noise every so often. And so it kind of rang a bell. And I wrote to Jonathan Rieke, who was then the director, and suggested that I did some photographs, made an exhibition, whatever sells, the money can go to the Hoffman Fund. And he said, yeah, great idea, come on. So I thought, um, tell him I'm busy. Um, <laughs> um, I thought that uh, the first thing I would do would go into the auditorium. Do anyone know Snake Mortings? Wonderful building. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go and sit in the seat that Benjamin Britten used to sit in, three rows down from the back and five in from the aisle, and just absorb silence. Didn't work. I went through the door, and the riggers were putting up the lighting for the next show, and they'd got a ghetto blaster on there playing <laughs> Kiss FM at multi-decibels. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's blown that idea out there. But, and the other thing was that I suddenly became aware that silence doesn't actually exist. In, in the, I did go to an exhibition, Joseph Boyce, the conceptual artist, Dutchman, and he'd built this room in the Tate, or was it in the Academy? I can't remember, one of those places, which had got felt walls which were hundreds of feet thick, well, lots of feet thick, and you went in, and it was meant to get rid of every sound, but, of course, you heard your body working. Do you know, I don't know whether you've ever experienced anything like that, but that could. And also, at the same sort of time, I'd been, we'd been to um, Oldborough Music, to um, Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, with Ashkenazi in charge, and it was the most amazing experience. And I had to sit right by the wall, and you could actually feel this music through the walls of this thing, because they, he did it, it's a wonderful production. Um, he had... There's uh, 10 choirs, I think, in that war requiem. One of them was outside, and the sound came in, and then the soprano sang, and it went over that sound. And I sat there thinking, 
these walls are just so dense with residual sound that silence just doesn't exist because it's there in your head. Um, the noises that you've heard, the music that you've heard. So I then sort of thought about um, metaphors, really. Um, and I quite like this one because um, there's a chair there, and if you look carefully, there's another chair back there. And that made me think about the time when you see often directors sit in the auditorium and someone does their bit and they, you know, there's that kind of rehearsal thing going on. Um, and so there is like a, a silent dialogue between those two things. It's, it's those sorts of thoughts. And I think if you've got a... I'll move that out of the way now. It's done its bit. Um, if you've got um, a hook to hang the thoughts and the process of making the photographs on, then it, it gives you the path. But as I said before, you, you have that path, but you've got to be able to spot the opportunities that take off from it. And um, what was really nice, again, tribute to dear old Michael, um, <coughs> I looked through the camera at this, and I was looking at that, and I was looking at that. And I was thinking about jazz. Um, there was that thing about call and response. You know, some, uh, one part of the band plays that, someone picks it up and plays a riff on it, and then it goes back and forth. And it seemed to me that this was similar. It just had that thing about it. And I asked Michael to write an essay to accompany the exhibition. And, um, and he's he described that as a graphic score waiting to be played. I thought, yes! <laughs> you know, it was such... I hadn't said anything to him, I just sent him the pictures. And he wrote a really lovely essay and, um, and described that one thus. And, and it was just... That, that was a confirmation in a way. And this one, although it looks fairly mundane, is a pure photographic moment because standing on the balcony of the, the, where the restaurant bit is, looking out across the, the reed beds, um, the shadow just hit the very first row of those reeds. By the time I'd wound on and set the camera again, the shadow had moved. And there was that one split moment. That was, so that's like a, a photograph you see what I mean, you know. Um, so, and, it, and you think about the, the word, the word that you hook the idea onto as you're working through. This lot up here were made in um, Berwickshire at uh, where Pauline Burbage and Charlie Paulson lived. Um, and again, that's another pure chance thing because I called in there one day. Pauline had been a student some 30-odd years ago, and the last time I'd seen her was in Nottingham before they moved up north. And I'd heard about this place that they had now. If you're ever in that area, Amanda, you'll confirm this, won't you? It's well worth a trip. There's, there are two artists. Um, Charlie's sculptor, sculptor. Pauline is a quilt maker, but... Um, they're essentially wall hangings. They're not quilts in the sense that a little old lady strips up little bits of trousers and stuff and makes them into bedspreads. They are drawn, multi-stitched. They're incredible. If I tell you they, they sell for upwards of £10,000 a piece, that's the sort of quilts they are. 
And the two of them have worked together over all these years, and they bought up this derelict building which had nowhere to live apart from, or nowhere dry, apart from a small part of one roof of one of the buildings. And they set up their sleeping bags there and their primer stove while they sort of built the thing. And now it's just the most amazing. It draws um, about seven to 700 to 1,000 people at the weekend when they do open studios. That's how important it is. Um, or that's how impressive it is. And I called in once because we were passing, reminded her who I was and so on. Came away thinking, poor. I'd like to do a project there. <laughs> then I thought, oh, don't be silly, it's 450 miles away. You know, you can go up and down 450 miles, ridiculous. But by way of saying thank you for their hospitality, I sent them a copy of the little Blackwell book that I've done, which is in there. And um, they wrote back and said, oh, I love the book, love the photos. Would you like to do a project here? <laughs> Dug it again. Um, so anyway, uh, I thought, well, why not? Let's go. And, but... I got there and I was trying to think about how I'd set about this job. Um, and I I, so I walked around the place and I got a large scale map and I looked at it. And there's the river, what we call the White Adder, but they, they pronounce Wittida. And there's the Black Adder comes down and they join together in, as White Adder water and they run into the Tweed. Um, and I thought, ah, that's a perfect metaphor for these two artists because they come from totally disparate sources. They've come together over a period of 30 years and worked together and produced something which is greater than the sum of the parts. And so I thought, confluence, that's the word, you know. So then that became the way. There is one literal image of confluence there, which is the two rivers coming together. But um, that's how I tend to work, is have a, have a thought about something and then pursue it through, um, but not slavishly following that, um, that, that particular, or, or, or literally, you know, that, that I think would be, would be a disaster. And at the same exhibition space, they turned one of their outbuildings into what they call the art room. They call it the art room because if they, pay, if they called it the gallery, it would attract tax, uh, council tax or something. <laughs> so it's called the art room. But as you approach it, you've got a long window with a windowsill, and then you go into the space where the work hangs. And um, I thought about that shelf or, or the windowsill, and I thought, oh, that would be good. We can put lots of stuff. And then I thought, no, hang on. If you do that, you've got the backs of photographs showing out of the window, and that's the first thing people see. And I just made a series of um, tables for our daughter's coffee shop out of 32 mil ply, and I had some offcuts. I thought, hang on, I could do that, couldn't I? I could, do, I could stand those on the windowsill, and you could see that side as you come in, and that side once you're in there. And I just like the, and again, it's Michael in the background saying, you've made object and image. <laughs> and so these became objects. So that's how those came about. Um, and I've just uh, developed it since, well, not developed it, but I mean, I've, I've um, just used it since because I've still got some of that ply left. <laughs> um, and I've glued them on, the pictures are glued on, but I've also put little black pins in the corner because I think that, that looks like it's part of, you know, it's how it ought to be somehow. And I just like the pins. <laughs> so, so um, again, it's, it's kind of 
object, really. Um, and I think, I think I've got an, enough of how, how one goes about working. And, and possibly it's worth talking a little bit about why I enjoy film and wet processing in the traditional way. Because when, again, when I was at West Dean doing pictures, someone said, oh, you're using film. And I said, oh, yes, always use film. And they said, um, yeah, but the thing with digital is you can see what you're getting, can't you? And I said, yeah, but I've got a light meter, and I can see what I'm getting. I've got two light meters, actually. I use this ordinary light meter and a spot meter. And, um, and that's one of the first things I had to learn, really, was learning how to see in terms of the film and the way that it works, because it's something I didn't know. I've never done a proper photography course as such. And I, was, uh, I always thought that if you can see it sufficiently well, you can photograph it, which you can up to a point. But then someone told me that the, um, the human eye has got a lighting ratio of seeing into dark to light of 1,000 to 1. The best you'll get out of any film is 128 to 1. So in any scene that you look at, there's going to be bits that are too light and bits that are too dark. And so you have to make a decision about which ones you want. And you can affect the difference between those through the processing, which is back to that whole thing about having film. And it's your material. You've learned how to use it. It's why I haven't really got involved with digital, because um, to use a, a phrase from my old granddad was, uh, not only was I born a bit too soon for digital, I think if I had a T-shirt, it would be inscribed with born too soon for Zoom. On it. Um, but given that I've been taking photographs with film for, I don't know, don't say really, nearly 60 years, um, I kind of know what I'm doing. With digital, I haven't got 60 more years left to work that out. And the other thing I like about paper is that it seems to be, a it seems to be able to give a sense of depth to the tones, which is greater than you know the paper to be. And if you look at digital imagery, and I'm not saying one's good and one's bad, it's just that, for me, digital imagery is surface-layered, and it sits on the surface, and you don't get that kind of depth into the paper that looks like it goes beyond the depth of the paper. Um, and so I enjoy that side of it. And I've, as you can see, I also enjoy the black and whiteness. I quite like the monochrome. And, it, and again, that's often something which is questioned, especially when I was doing West Dean. You know, this is a garden. Why are you working in black and white? Well, I think the thing with colour is, in that situation, it tells you too much too soon. In other words, if I... That picture of the trees up there or whatever, someone who who was a regular in the garden will know those trees and they'll see those, but they won't see just that picture. They'll see what they experienced 12 months ago or six months ago. So they're kind of participating in the image rather than just, just having it thrown at them. And colour wouldn't... To me, I don't think colour gives you that, that possibility. Um, when I did these silence things originally, um, the plan was to design them so that the frame was quite was particularly deep and the pictures set well back so that when you stood in front of them you reflected you couldn't avoid being reflected in it 
And so you then became absorbed in the same image, if you like. But then the practicalities of doing that didn't work out because they gave me the what they call the concert hall gallery, which is the bit that goes from the restaurant down to the entrance of the concert hall. And um, actually, at that point, I'd a friend, Simon Perriton, the painter, who's got a couple of pictures of him up there, he had an exhibition in, at Auburn, again, to do with Auburn music, but he got the Peter Pierce Gallery in the high street. And the thing about that is you get a banner that hangs outside, right down the length of the building, which says Simon Perriton. And I thought, that's what I want. I want to be there, <laughs> Graham Murrell. And so um, I, I spoke to them about it, and they said... Um, well, we thought you could have the corridor gallery. Um, all right, then. Um, but then uh, a friend, Hugh Pilkington, lived in, in, in Orford, and he was a bit of a curator and so on, and he was curating a Paul Nash, an exhibition of Paul Nash photographs, some of which I printed from the original um, negatives. And the Peter Pierce gallery, if you don't know it, is upstairs in the middle of the high street, and you come up an iron staircase to it. And... Um, this lovely little exhibition, it was some, there's some cracking photographs, actually. Paul Nash photographs are quite, quite exciting, some of them. And um, we were up there, having just hung it, waiting for people to turn up. And, no, and then there was suddenly clip-clop, clip-clop up the steps. We thought, ah, oh, good, people are coming. The door opened, and her face went, ooh, it's only photographs. And <laughs> <laughs> went downstairs. So I thought, yeah, perhaps I'll have the corridor go. <laughs> And, of course, then I worked out that during the duration of the exhibition, 40,000 pairs of eyes walked past my pictures. Now, where would you get that football in a gallery? Because the loos are down there as well. And so, <laughs> so people go to the loo and their partners wait for them to um, come out. And, and that did well. Actually, we sold a, a lot for that and uh, made a small contribution to the, the, the Hoffman building. Um, so it's that kind of hooking things on. I think I've probably done enough by now. I'm looking at... I think I have them now. I'd like to finish on one really nice Michael story, since um, this exhibition is, is um, really dedicated to him. Uh, that picture, sorry, above Martin there. Um, that's one from County Mayo, the one on the right. And um, <clears throat> I'd been there a couple of times. I should just say a little bit about Bally, Bally, the Ballycastle, the Ballinglen Arts Foundation Trust, because I was doing the silence exhibition, and there's a lady called Margot Dolan who was a gallery owner in New York and and, and Philadelphia, and she had, she was a great friend of Lady Besper, and she used to come quite often to to uh, Roche Court, um, but she also had a house in County Mayo, and um, she. Yes, by chance, this is why I said in some of these, something written there that uh, I've been dogged by good fortune throughout. In fact, I had a friend who said, oh, I must pick you up on something, because when you're dogged by something, it means that it's something unpleasant. <laughs> it's an oxymoron. Did you not get that? <laughs> anyway, so um, I, um, she came along, saw the exhibition, and then sent me a note saying, would you like to accept one of our fellowships? And I thought, wow, that's all right. And I, the, the idea was that you get, a, you get a place to live and a studio. And we went over went with Jenny, and um, we were expecting there to be some old shack somewhere with a bit of straw to sleep on and things. They're only, art <laughs> they're only artists, you know. And when you get there, you've got, there, there were six 
lovely little oh, sort of croft-like buildings, but modern ones, immaculately turned out. Even the cutlery was well chosen. And, um, and it turns out that Margot Dolan's husband was an architect, so everything was considered. And then in the town, which is just one street, you had a studio, which again was immaculate. And it was all for free, except you had to leave a piece of work with the, with the uh, foundation for their permanent collection. It's a brilliant deal. Um, and, but of course, they didn't have a darkroom to make prints, so I wasn't able to... Um, the normal thing was you went for six weeks, and then you fi when you finished, if you were a painter, you put all your work around the studio, the, the powers that be that came in and selected a picture, and that was that, and then you paid for your dues, and you were away. And... Um, I couldn't do that, so I had to come away from there. And I thought, well, I haven't, because I knew that, so I'm out of context a little bit, I, I decided not to go for a six-week block, but could I go for one week as a recce? Because I had no idea about Ireland at all, none at all. And it's the northwest coast. And we'd read somewhere that somebody said, uh, quite an, quite a, someone of quite a, some authority said, there's no point crossing a line between Sligo and Galway because there's absolutely nothing there. Mm -hmm. And it's that very nothing there-ness that makes it so appealing. And it just goes to show that somebody's nothingness is someone else's something. And um, we went and we just, it was amazing. So I had the first week and I went with a camera, just a handheld 35, well, I took the X-Pan actually. And I just walked around and took snaps. Then I started to think about the word and the word that cropped up was resilience because it seemed to me that they withstood so much over the years in Ireland, what with the, you know, all the, 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 um, the famines and the, the persecution and all of that and all of that. But there was a terrific spirit there. And there was, so I thought, yeah, that's the word. Then I thought, well, what will, what will show me, what gives me some sense of resilience. And I th thought the abbeys and the priories, because there were quite a few abbeys and priories around. And I went to those, and you went into them with great big spaces. That, but although there was no roof left, you could still feel the sense of the place. And I started to work there. And then I became aware that they'd been carefully maintained by the municipal authorities. So that instead of, so you look closely at the wall and there was a bit of lead running through near the top so that the walls weren't going to crumble and it was waterproofed and what have you. And I thought, no, that's not really right. It's a bit like um, you enter a room and you see someone on the other side and you think, oh, they look a bit smart <laughs> or whatever. You've got to be careful here, you've got to do PC. But, and then you get a bit closer and you realise that the old um, plastic surgeon's been at work and so they haven't actually survived quite the way you thought they had. And that was, what, that was the feeling I got with the building. So I then found the harbours round on the edge and... Um, that's one picture over there. And I thought, no, they, they're much more appropriate because they thrust out into the Atlantic and they, they take the brunt of all that the Atlantic can throw at them. They support possibly one or two little fishing boats or whatever. And I don't know, it just felt right. So I, I started working on those. But then I realised that um, a lot of, lot of the imagery that I wanted to make, I couldn't quite get to with the couple of three lenses I had. So I came home after that second visit and bought a, at some cost uh, a slightly long lens, a telephoto lens. And with a telephoto lens, it kind of compresses. 
things. I don't know whether you know about that, but I mean, if you're doing portraiture, you use a slightly longer lens because it pushes the nose back and brings the eyes forward. If you use a wide-angle lens, it brings the nose out and the ears back. <laughs> it doesn't work. Um, so, but I like the quality that a, a long lens gives. And I saw, I'd just walked around that harbour wall, and I'd walked down the steps, and um, I thought I went to the other side, and with my lens, I was able to photograph it. And I showed it to Michael, and he said, um, "Ah." where steps used to be. And I said, uh, no, Michael, they are steps. I'd just walked down there. And with that um, lovely twinkle in his eye, he went, you're no good at depth, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so the, I think that's a good point to end on, really. But I can throw myself at your, at your mercy and ask for, um, I mean, we're, we're, I'm told to ask for questions if... If anyone's... Oh, dear. Go on. <laughs> I think it's a pretty easy one. And it's because we're facing that way already. What's with the Alfred Wallace and the drain pipe? <laughs> That's, you call that an Alfred Wallace? Well, someone the other day saw it and said, oh, that's just like Magritte, isn't it? <laughs> like a floating... Well, it's, it's, again, it's that fact that the, the window has, has gone... And it's just a structural thing, too, the horizontal and the vertical and balance. And um, then someone else looked at it and said, oh, that's perfect, because that's a minus sign. <laughs> you know, because an awful lot has gone from that area. You know, an awful lot has been taken away. And so that one, that's one of my favourite pictures, actually. Because <laughs> another thing about photography is if you're not careful, you open the lens and the whole world falls in. Um, and the thing that you've got, the skill you have to develop, I think, is homing in on, on that and leaving out that which you don't want in, in the image. Um, but it just seemed a bit slightly poignant, really, um, the fact that the Bally, you know, it had struggled and Ballycastle was quite run down. Um, oddly enough, it's picked up a lot. Now, there's been a lot of EU money in there. Oops, don't say things like that. <laughs> um, but it has actually picked up now. And, um, but that seemed appropriate at the time. And if you look at the bottom of the drain pipe, it's kind of, the pavement has just come up above it a little bit. And, you know, um, it's... Uh, but, but I do like that, that... I think one of the... If you talk to photography people do sort of amateur photography or camera clubs and so on, they talk about the rule of thirds and the golden mean and so on. I've never quite understood what that was. And the best thing I ever saw about composition was a book which I blimmin' well can't find anymore, which I wish I could, but it showed a sheet of paper and it had a line drawn across it and it said, that's balance, that's harmony, equal, equal sign put the line down towards the bottom and you've got oppression and suppression, you've got more interest and less interest. Then in the lower portion, put a handful of dots and that lower portion becomes the same value as the upper portion, although it's smaller because it's got interest within it. And that's the kind of one lesson that I learned, I think, about composition. It's about things like um, taking the spaces and filling them equally 
or trying to create a state of equilibrium between unequal values. You know that thing if you've got a fulcrum and, a, and you put a lightweight on the long end and a heavy weight on the other end, it balances. Well, it's a kind of visual equivalent of that, which I kind of look for in, in making a photograph. Um, anyway, more questions? <laughs> Everybody's desperate for their glasses to be topped up. <laughs> I've, I'll be milling about, so if you want to ask me something embarrassing, you can do that quietly on the side. <laughs> but I, I think that's about it, isn't it? No, don't do that. Don't do that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fendit and Gallery podcast. If you would like to find out more about our upcoming exhibitions, please visit our website, fenditongallery.com. If you enjoyed this interview, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to like and subscribe. You'll also find other episodes featuring some of the other artists and makers that we've had the pleasure of showing at the gallery. Thank you.